Galatians, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Galatians chapter 3, uh, here in just a few minutes. If you are our guest with us this morning, I just want to say a special welcome. I'm glad to see you. My name is Will. I get the privilege to serve as pastor here, and it's exciting that you're here. Hopefully on your way in, you received a gift bag, and in that bag there should be a, a card, a connect card. We would love for you to fill that out, leave it in your seat so that we can know how we can better connect with you in ministry uh, when you're gone. And we have been in a series that we have titled Set Free and Live Free uh, through the book of Galatians as we are examining uh, this, what is potentially the earliest New Testament book, the first of Paul's letters, uh, the first place, if you will, where Paul really works out the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are... uh, at the point of being in Galatians 3 today, where we are right smack dab in the middle of where Paul is attempting to explain the content of his gospel, the message that he preached. And as I've been studying this passage of Scripture this week, I'll be honest, it's potentially one of uh, the most difficult passages in all of Paul. It's one of the most debated passages in all of Paul. And so it's been a struggle uh, prayerfully to work through this and understand it and attempt to um, uh, to be able then to explain it to you uh, this morning and to the best of my ability is is a challenge. And as I was prayerfully thinking through it, a question came up and a a picture that has really kind of helped me understand this passage of Scripture uh, came to my mind. And so my question to you this morning as we get started is, have you ever been invited to a real, I'm talking like real, capital R-E-A-L, real fancy feast? I've been to some fancy weddings um, I had some cousins that got married, and um, one was marrying a music executive out of Nashville, and it was a, a beautiful wedding and a beautiful reception. But, but even then, this was kind of under what I'm expecting or what I'm asking you this morning. I'm talking about, think about one of those Downton Abbey type meals, right, ladies, where you've got somebody who is a lord over the lands, and they've sent out the letters, and there's some fancy person, and you've been invited to the Vanderbilt Mansion or the Biltmore Mansion or whatever it is, and you have received this invitation for dinner, and it is this this elaborate affair. And when you get there and they have the big dining room that's all set up and it's ready, but it's not time for dinner and all of the guests are arriving here and there, the host wants to to prepare their guests and to, to take care of their guests in the meantime. And so what does the host do in that? They provide some hors d'oeuvres, right? Maybe you've been to somebody's house and you're waiting on dinner and you're waiting for everybody to get there. And in the meantime, this host has provided you with some appetizers that are sitting out there. And you partake of those appetizers and maybe they're wonderful. But they're these tiny little portions of things that are, that are meant to take care of you in the meantime while you're awaiting the arrival of this wonderful meal that they've invited you to. Now imagine, if you will, everybody sits down at the table for the feast, right? But among those guests who have arrived, there are certain individuals who have decided that instead of joining you at the table for the feast, they'd rather stay out in the foyer and keep eating the hors d'oeuvres. Now I'll tell you all that, tell you, I, I love me some appetizers. Right? I will, I will eat my fill in chips and dip if we go to the Mexican restaurant. I will eat my, my fill of the, the, you know, the, the smoked sausages and cheese and crackers and stuff that my mother-in-law puts out pre-Thanksgiving and all that other kind of stuff. And I will eat myself full on the stuff that's not the real meal long before the meal gets there. And I may choose to stay because, you know what, I really may like this a whole lot better than what's coming. 
But imagine there are some of those guests that they decide to stay out there in the foyer and simply continue to feast on the hors d'oeuvres and they choose not to partake of the feast that they were invited to. Or worse yet, imagine that there are some people who arrived fashionably late and they get there just in time for dinner or maybe even after dinner is being served and they sit down. But then some of the guests who arrived earlier say, hey, listen, you're not really going to understand what our host intended for us unless you go out in the foyer and eat the hors d'oeuvres first. Or worse yet, those individuals want to bring the hors d'oeuvres out of the foyer and put them on the table in addition to the whole feast that the host has prepared for you. What would we think if that was going on at a dinner that we were at? We would think, I believe, one of two things. Either something is really wrong with these people, that they don't understand you've been invited to a dinner, and it's all about the dinner and not the hors d'oeuvres, Or worse, we would come to the conclusion that our host has done a really horrible job on the dinner such that everyone is smitten by the hors d'oeuvres. And that has helped me understand, that picture has helped me understand what was going on in the Galatian churches. Because in a similar way, this this notion of individuals who are choosing the hors d'oeuvres instead of the feast, or who are trying to lay the hors d'oeuvres on the people who are the guests of the feast, is very similar to what is happening between the law and the promise in the churches of Galatia. And it's what happens when you and I continue to struggle just as they did by confusing the law and its purpose with the promise and its blessing. When we attempt to obtain by the law what only grace can give, we find ourselves, as Paul has previously said, under a curse. But that is exactly what you and I struggle with day in and day out. It's a universal human problem that we attempt to obtain by the law what only grace can give. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to address in the verses that we're going to read this morning in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. So look with me, if you will, in the word of the Lord, to what Paul says as he continues his argument. Beginning in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. 
And I confess this morning that it is my constant struggle, just as it was the struggle of these men and women in the churches of Galatia to understand not merely the complexity of the law, but your good purpose and intention behind it from the beginning. And I allow it, Heavenly Father, to oftentimes dilute my relationship with you that came by faith, is built on faith. And instead, Heavenly Father, I try to supplement by my own strength and my own record of righteousness what you would freely give and have freely given in your Son, Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, that you would prick our hearts and our conscience with the truth of your word, such that, Heavenly Father, we might be those who are prepared to be transformed again this morning by another look at our beautiful Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Just by a bit of review, earlier in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, if you'll remember from last week, Paul asked a series of rhetorical questions of his congregations in Galatia. And essentially his questions boiled down to this, did you receive the promised spirit and the gracious gift of God's righteousness by law, your record of righteousness, your obedience to certain rituals and and religious practices, or did you receive the Holy Spirit and therefore the righteousness of God by faith? The answer that he comes to at the end of our verses that we studied last week is it's clearly by faith. That was how the Lord worked centuries, millennia before with Abraham. And that, he says, is exactly how God worked in the churches then, and that's exactly how God works today. He saves by faith alone. Believing in the gospel, hearing the words of God, believing the words of God, taking him at his word. And so Paul explained that when we attempt to achieve through some religious system or a record of righteousness what God can only do by his grace through faith, what we find out is that we live, he says in chapter 3, verse, let me see, 12 and following, that we live then and choose to live, I'm sorry, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. When we attempt to rely on the law to do what only God's grace can do, we choose then to live under a curse. Why is that? This is because when we expect the law or some religious system or religious rituals or our adherence to those rules to achieve our righteousness, we're asking it to do what it was never built to do and therefore cannot handle. There are weight limits on trampolines. There are weight limits on trucks and on trains. There's a certain payload that a road is able to handle. And when you put someone out there who ignores those warnings and instead overloads a vehicle, what's going to happen to that vehicle? It's going to buckle under the weight and you're going to end up with a bigger problem than you had in the first place. And what Paul wants us to see is that this is exactly what happens when we expect the law to be the source of our salvation. When we expect the law to accomplish in us what only God's grace can do, we overload the law and ask it to do something that it was never actually meant to do. And this is the first of Paul's major points in the verses that we just read. 
He wants us to see the inferiority of the law in comparison to the promise. Stated in a more positive way, Paul points out in these verses the superiority of the promise. He wants us to know that the promise that God gave to Abraham is greater than the law in every single possible way. First, it's greater than the law in the fact that the promise came before the law. The promise was given to Abraham, he said, centuries and generations before God gave the law to Moses. And that promise was that Abraham would have an offspring, and that offspring would not only receive the fulfillment of God's promises, but be the source of that promise and the benefits of that promise going to all of the peoples of the earth. That came to Abraham from God centuries and generations before God gave the law. Therefore, Paul says, since the promise predates the law, is older than the law, the law is not more important than the promise. It came after the promise. Second, he wants us to see that the promise has no expiration date, and the law does. There's a word that appears, at least in the ESV, three different times in verse 19, verse 23, and verse 24 as Paul characterizes the relationship of the law to the promise. That the law is in effect until. 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 It's time bound. The law was put in place until the arrival of the one who was the recipient of the promise, the offspring of Abraham. There is an expiration date on the law. The promise, however, has no expiration date. That's what Paul explains in verses 15 through 18. That just like in, in a similar way that when someone makes a will and ratifies that will, and that will goes into effect, no one can change it. It's locked. And if that is the expectation and that is the reality of a human contract, a human covenant such as a will, how much more so must it be true of God's covenant and his promise and his commitment to Abraham and therefore to Abraham's offspring? So the law cannot annul, cancel, bring to an end the promise because the promise has no end. But the law is only for a, a temporary period of time. The third way that the law, he says, is inferior to the promise is that the law came through a system of intermediaries, but the promise that God made with Abraham was face-to-face. So the background there is that when we get to Genesis chapter 15 and God comes in and he makes his covenant relationship with Abraham and he expands on this promise, Abraham and God are having a conversation and God enters the covenant with Abraham, directly with Abraham. More than that, it's all about God. Abraham's asleep when the covenant gets made. And so it's all based on God and his character and his will. Instead, though, the law came to the people of Israel through this intermediary, which is Moses. God spoke to Moses and through Moses to the Israelites. And Paul brings in something that might be a little bit confusing to us when he says that it came not only through the intermediary, which is Moses, the human intermediary, it also came through the presence of angels. And that might seem a little bit shocking to us, but the reality is it shouldn't be because throughout the Scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Acts chapter 7, verse 53, 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. I'd be glad to give those verses to you after the Scripture. But in all three of those locations, there is the indication that the angels were present and active and participants in the time that God gave the law to the people of Israel. So the presence of the angels and the presence of the intermediary, what Paul is trying to communicate is not confusing us with the presence of all of these people. Instead, he is trying to show us that there are layers of separation between God and the people when it comes to the law in comparison to God with Abraham face to face. And so in that, the promise that God gave to Abraham is better than, stronger than, more important than even the law. Think about it this way, going back to the illustration that we had earlier. The hors d'oeuvres that you receive when you show up at this host's house don't cancel out or replace the promise that you got when you got the invitation that you were going to have dinner. If you show up to the host's house after receiving an invitation that you've been invited to dinner and they start handing out hors d'oeuvres, that doesn't cancel the expectation in your mind or the expectation of the host that dinner is coming. Instead, it's clearly something that is meant to be a, 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 a supplement to, if you will, the overall experience. And so in the same way, the law can't cancel the promise. The law must do something other than the promise. Or it must be complementary to the promise. And you see, that's where we are at. When we try to trust in the law or our religious rule following, or records of right behaviors, what we're going to be doomed for is disappointment. Because the law is going to leave us wanting. It's going to leave us broken. It's going to leave us, it's going to fail us every single time. And that's what Paul is attempting to convince the Galatian Christians of. And their need to, is not to follow after Jewish laws. Instead, he's encouraging them to walk in faith in Jesus Christ. Because to take these Jewish systems and laws and bring it into their faith in Jesus Christ means that they're walking out on a bridge that will never support their weight. And when you and I attempt to take our relationship with Jesus Christ and turn it into the things that we do, don't do, the places that we are or that we don't go, the things that we give, the things that we, we sacrifice, when we turn it into a list of the things that we do, a record of our righteousness— and obeying and adhering to certain rules, we're doing the same thing. We're looking to the law to do what only the grace can do, and in doing so, we're choosing a curse. And we're actually diluting and rejecting the beauty of the feast, the promise that God originally gave to us. So that then begs the question that Paul asks in verse 15, or verse 19, okay? If the law is inferior to the promise, why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? And Paul points out that the law was never meant to replace the promise or become the mechanism of achieving the promise. If that's the case, why did God give it? And Paul gives us some specific reasons. In verse 19, he goes on to say that the purpose of the law is first, it's there because of transgression. The law wasn't merely given because sin was present— as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the law came to increase the trespasses. When the law came, the law had this counterintuitive effect that it actually increased the presence of sin. This makes sense if we really stop and think about it. Have you ever told a child, hey, don't touch the cookie jar and then leave the room? I just baked fresh cookies. Don't touch the cookie jar and leave the room. 
what do you think is going to happen? The child's going to go after the cookie jar. Even though the rule has been clearly stated, there's this temptation, there is this presence. David Platt and Tony Merida in their, con- in their commentary explain it this way. The law shows us we can't be perfect because the law exposes our sin. To be clear, the law doesn't make us sinners, but rather the law reveals the fact that we are already sinners. It uncovers the sinful heart that is in each and every one of us. God gave the law to uncover our sin, to expose it. Our tendency to be disobedient and reject God and his expectations. That's what he means. The law came because of transgression, to expose it. But he also goes on in verse 23 that says the other purpose of the law is that the law served as a prison. The law imprisoned us, according to verse 23, and held us captive under the law. See, the law doesn't merely expose the presence of sin in our lives and our tendency towards sin and disobedience. The law then exposes our inability to do anything about it. When you stop and you think about the system of rules and the laws and the regulations and everything else, what we find out is anyone who has ever attempted to live this life of righteousness and do everything that is expected of us, you end up like that hamster in its cage on a wheel. And as much as you run, guess what happens? The wheel just keeps going and going and going and going and going and you never get anywhere. The law imprisons us. The law is meant to be a weight upon us that exposes our inability to do anything about our unrighteousness. And we're trapped in this system that we can never escape despite our very best efforts. The law is meant to expose our sin and and then expose our weakness, our inability to do anything about it. But finally, in doing both of those things, the purpose of the law, Paul says in verse 24, is that the law served as a guardian. Now, the picture that we have here, this word guardian, is a lot like a nanny or a governess of children. Someone who's responsible for the upbringing and the care of a child to eventually hand them off into maturity and into adulthood and into self-sufficiency to a certain extent. Now, no good nanny, no good parent, for that matter, wants to have a 35-year-old child fully dependent upon them and who can't do anything for themselves. That's a dereliction of our duties as parents to raise children apart from any other limiting factor who refuse or don't take care of themselves. Instead, the guardian is meant to be there to bring them to a certain point and hand them off. And the purpose of the law is to expose our sin, expose our inability to do anything about it, and therefore be the sign that constantly points us to the destination which is Jesus the one who can do something about our sin. What's the point of the hors d'oeuvres at the party? It's not to replace the meal or the dinner. Instead, it's to tide you over and and potentially whet your appetite for what is to come. And that's exactly what the law is there for. It is to be something that points you constantly, exposes your sin and your inability to do anything about it, and therefore awakens inside of you a desire for someone who can. And so in all of this, Paul points us again and again and again beyond the law, beyond the promise, 
to the one who fulfills the promise, which is Jesus Christ. So beyond just the superiority of the promise and the purpose of the law, Paul wants to expose in these verses the person of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Go back and imagine those people who received that dinner party invitation, who show up to the dinner party invitation, or to the dinner party, and they meet and greet and they eat the hors d'oeuvres and and all of that, they satisfy themselves, if you will, and then they move on. And they skip the feast altogether. Or better yet, the entire time that they're sitting at the feast, their mind is back on those hors d'oeuvres that were only meant to tide them over for a period of time and whet their appetite for the feast that is now before them. And they can't get beyond those, those trivial things in order to experience the freedom of the feast that's in front of them. And yet, how many of us as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians in America are attempting to survive spiritually on these tiny little trinkets and nuggets of my behavior. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, I go to church because I was baptized, because I read my Bible, because I tithe, because I serve, because I this, because I that. Those are all great, and I'm grateful for them. But that's not how you're saved. That's not why you're saved. And when we try to depend upon those things, as good as they might be, we'll always find ourselves falling far short of the glory of God. Those aren't things that we do to be saved or to justify our salvation. Those are the overflow and the fruit of sitting at the table, feasting on what's already been prepared, what's already been accomplished, what's already been given to us, which is Jesus Christ. What we fail to see, or when we fail to see, that the purpose of the law is merely meant to point us to Jesus and instead try to treat it like a ladder that we can climb to God, we'll find that it is weak, that it is frail, and that it will collapse under our weight every single time, leaving us more desperate and in a darker place than when we began. And instead, what we have to see is Jesus Christ is the end of the promise. He is the one offspring, Paul says, that God promised to Abraham who would become the source of blessing for all of the rest of the world. Paul says it explicitly. It's not just an offspring. And Paul knows that the immediate context of that is that, that, that God is promising Abraham Isaac, which will then become a people and everything else. But Paul also understands the trajectory of the Old Testament that said the promise that was given to Abraham was then narrowed to the tribe of Judah, was then narrowed to David, and was going to be his son, which is Jesus Christ. All of Scripture flows towards the Messiah who would come and fulfill the promise. He is the end of the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise points beyond itself to the one who would accomplish the promise. He's the better mediator, whereas Moses stood between God and the people and represented them to God and represented God to the people and stood in the gap. Jesus Christ is God who came and lived the perfect and spotless life of righteousness that we can't 
but as we are expected to live, who paid the price for our sin that we deserve and that he doesn't. And so now as the perfect God-man who has lived righteously and borne the punishment, he stands in the gap interceding for you and for me such that we receive his righteousness and he takes our transgressions. He's the better mediator. He's the perfect redeemer who came and fulfilled all of the law, as we will see next week, born under the law, fulfilled all of the law, that he might rescue us and redeem us from the law so that we don't have to rely on it anymore because it's never about our standard, our record of righteousness. Instead, it's about his record of righteousness, which now stands in our place. And Jesus is the better host. He's the subject of the feast. Everything flows to him. To fail to get to Jesus is to misunderstand this entire passage. As confusing as it can be about laws and promises and this and that and legal documents being overruled and annulled and everything else and angels and mediators and intermediaries, all of that, we can get distracted on that. But when we fall short of Jesus Christ, and the fact that he has done everything for us, and to find our identity in him, and faith in him, and realize that he was the one who fulfilled it all so that the law was only there until the coming of Jesus Christ. And now that he has come, the law has fulfilled its purpose, and we don't need to go back to the law and try to bring it into our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he is perfect, and he has perfectly changed us. It's true that God calls us to love one another. It's true that Jesus Christ commands us to forgive one another. It's true, as we will see even in the book of Galatians, that God's expectation is that we reflect God in his nature and his character. All of that is true. The problem comes when we try to accomplish all of those things in our own power, in our own strength, and to do better, and to be better, and to love more, and to forgive more, and to reflect God more. When what Paul wants us to remember is that before you can love, you have to know that you are loved. And before you can forgive, you have to live in the identity and the reality that you are forgiven. And before you can properly reflect the Lord, you have to know by faith in Jesus Christ that as we will see next week, you have been adopted into the family of God such that you are now a son and daughter of God and you are now a reflection of his character, period. It's not about what you do until it's about who you are. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are a child of God if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And when you know and you live in trust in that, then you live by faith, crucifying yourself and your flesh such that Christ can now live in you and through you. So my question for you as we conclude is simply this. What are you looking to for your righteousness? 
What are you looking to for your status before God? Because remember, the question is not can they be saved by faith. The overarching question that is being challenged of the churches of Galatia is what is necessary for you to be accepted by God? What are you looking to to justify your acceptance in the presence of God. And if it's anything less than Jesus, then you're living under a curse. And the invitation from Paul and myself and the gospel is to turn from that. To turn from your sin and from yourself and trust in Jesus to be the justification of your righteousness and the basis of your salvation and the core of your identity and live in freedom because you've been set free in Christ. What are you looking to for your righteousness? Are you seated at the feast and enjoying it? Or are you still trying to go back to those hors d'oeuvres and live off those tiny bites that were never intended to sustain you? I invite you, if you would, go before the Lord. Spend a moment in his presence and in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to bring clarity and how best you need to respond to this passage of Scripture. Go before him Seek his grace, and I'll close this in a moment.